This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the city of New York. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Tommy Vaughn. Um, Dr. Vaughn is, is a fascinating guy. I've known him for a long time on campus. Uh, he came to Columbia many years ago as the, uh, he's a professor in biomedical engineering and also in radiology. Um, he's also at one of the PIs or principal investigators at the Zuckerman Mind Brain Behavior Institute at Columbia. And he's the director of the Magnetic Residence Imaging and Research at Columbia. And so if you've ever been in an MRI or Magnetic Residence Imaging machine at a hospital, um, you'll want to listen to this because it gives it, uh, Dr. Vaughn gives an overview of what an MRI does and how it, it uses the human body's uh, own protons as a source of energy to generate these images and to really understand the chemistry of what's happening in your body, both when you're sick and also when you're healthy. Um, how his work is not only pushing the boundaries of what the the biggest and fanciest and most detailed uh, nine Tesla MRI machines are, and how Columbia has got a new one funded by the NSF, but also about how to take the same underlying MRI technology and make it available everywhere throughout the world as cheap and as fast and as rugged as possible so that you can give more people on the planet access to this amazing technology. We'll also talk about Dr. Vaughn's uh, early years and how he sort of struggled to find out what his career was going to be. He was interested in so many different things. He taught him, he, was, he learned to fly airplanes before he learned how to drive. Um, he's interested in entomology and also uh, agriculture and gardening um, and, and, you know, his German language studies, how he worked for NASA. And he, during, he actually took eight years to graduate college in his, in his path to finding his true passion in life. So uh, we'll jump right into the conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Dr. Vaughn, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, maybe we could start off with just a little bit of your backstory. So if I understand correctly, you grew up in Alabama, I believe. And I, I was curious, how early in your life did you know you wanted to be a scientist? My first 10 years, anyway, are from, from Alabama. Um, my first two years in Tuskegee and followed by eight more years uh, in the community next door in Auburn, Alabama. My parents were both either in school or um, my father, a college professor, my mother, experimental psychologist. So I, I've from the beginning had a, an early introduction to the sciences and to academia. And so I, I guess that without my knowing it at the time set the stage for me for exposure to a diverse range of interests and um, people from around the world and to the topics of, of science and medicine specifically. My father uh, was a veterinarian, but on okay. the academic side. Was this sort of expectation that you would go into science or was this something that you just were exposed to and found you loved? Um, none really. Um, they were very good about that. I even wondered sometimes why they didn't put more pressure on me like other kids' parents. They, their mantra was typically they didn't care what I did for my life. They just uh, emphasized my fulfillment in life. Well, you know, the first thing I technically remember wanting to be very passionately was being a farmer, actually. Okay. Uh, I guess you could extrapolate that to agricultural science, but um, I love keeping a garden since uh, my paternal grandmother taught me to garden when I was four or so, planting my first rows of collards and turnips. I went from there to being quite interested uh, you know, I was growing up during the, the, the moonshot days, so 
Uh, I was quite interested in anything space and technology. So I just, as soon as I left my farming ambitions behind, which I've never really fully given up, I was very interested in engineering uh, and technology. How did you first know that science was going to be your lifelong pursuit? Well, I didn't. As, as I mentioned, I was raised in a university town by university parents um, in both medicine and psychology. Yet I always had a, a, a keen interest in, in engineering and, and technology side things too. So I truly just left that floating. After I wanted to be a farmer, for example, I, I loved, loved, loved collecting uh, bugs, butterflies, moths. And um, I thought maybe I'll be an entomologist. But uh, when I learned entomology is mostly about how to better kill insects, you know, <laughs> for agricultural purposes, uh, that that uh, took away some of my interest there. Well, when I was 10, my parents moved to Ithaca, New York, where my father was a Cornell professor and my mother worked for the Ithaca City School Systems as a psychologist. So I, I had deep exposure to a lot of stimulate an environment in sciences and academia. For example, uh, some of our dear family friends, Howie Evans um, at Ithaca, uh, they were also close family friends with Carl Sagan's family, for example. So I got uh, some personal interface time with, with Carl Sagan. He was a real inspiration. So, and given um, your interest in space, you mentioned that you were, you know, that, that, yes. that space space was a personal it, passion. That must have been pretty thrilling for a ten year old. It it truly was. Uh, so so space and and life sciences. Uh, I mentioned my father was a veterinarian. Uh, my mother's psychologist, so um, the life sciences, the human sciences, the and all the things an academic community can bring. But then I always had this side to me that I was very interested in technology and engineering. I love particular using my hands, building things, built all kinds of things. And um, of course, your business so much involves helping people like me uh, prosecuting and 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 applying, doing something with patents in the real world. From the beginning, I was inventing. I, I uh, came up with uh, rollerblades before there were rollerblades. I, <laughs> drilled, I drilled, drilled holes in the blades of my ice skates and, and mounted, you know, roller wheels on them. I came up <laughs> with bicycles that you could ride in the snow, you know, putting a ski in the front forks and flattening the back rim and belting <laughs> a piece of snowmobile tread. You know, so... I was always building things like that. You must have been um, very popular with the neighborhood kids. I imagine that your <laughs> these 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 things would have been very very appealing to the local teenagers. Yeah, or odd, yes. But uh, <laughs> I was I was always doing something. I built my own radio when I was eleven. You know, with a cat's whisker for a diode and uh, for detection signal signal detection. So so that was just in me. I can't explain why, but um, but I always had a just a very diverse range of interests, which sounds rich and wonderful, and it is, but it was also a, a, a painful distraction. I couldn't ever focus on any one particular pursuit that didn't trouble me at the time. I, I loved it all. But by the time I got to school, Ithaca High School had, had some very good accelerated programs there. So my parents moved back to Alabama when I was 16, 
And I had already had um, all the coursework I needed to graduate from high school, at least what the, the Auburn high schools had to offer. So I just started the university, Auburn University, still living at home at age 16. Signed up uh, initially in, in foreign languages uh, because I had taken a lot of German and a lot of German literature in Ithaca. Why German? Because there was no, no more room in the Spanish class. So, such as decisions <laughs> are made. So, um, but at the same time, I wanted to learn how to fly. So it was part of the, the space and astronaut kind of binge. So, so I um, took flying lessons. I got uh, my pilot's license on my 17th birthday, as early as you can get a pilot's license. Still didn't have a car license. I rode my bicycle a lot. I worked in a local bike shop and <laughs> built bikes for people. Um, so the engineering side again. Anyway, clearly, and I, as you can say, I'm still struggling with all of that. It didn't add up to anything. Um, and each time I would sign up for a new major and start having to do homework problems, I'd think, ah, oh, maybe this is not for me. I'd rather the grass is greener over there, over there, over there such as the decision-making for a 16-year-old right. interested in everything and, and having no idea what they wanted to do with their life. It did concern me, however, what to do with my life. I, Even at that age, I had an appreciation uh, for life being short and precious, and I wanted it to count for something. I wanted to do something more than just amuse myself. And it frustrated me. I don't mean this in a heavy negative way, but it was a kind of a cruel side of life to expect a 16-year-old kid to decide how they want to spend the produ their productive years of their life on earth with no experience, no background on anything, and just a wide, you know, the wide array of interests. So after changing my major about seven times from all over the place, from physics and math to foreign language to aerospace engineering to fine arts, I um, just decided I need to, to know more before I can make these decisions of about, again, what to do with my life. So I, in the meantime, one of my main jobs, usually had a lot of jobs too, was as a bicycle mechanic in the local bike shop. I um, got on my bicycle and over the course of two years, rode around the world, 57 countries, is this this and, is after graduation? No, this is interrupted college. Yes. Ah, so you took time <laughs> off during you took time off yeah. during college to go ride your bike around. Right from eighteen to twenty, but I, I did it. I did it all at once. I, I would do segments. Uh, we were on the quarter system, so I would take off a quarter to a half year at a time over the course of about two and a half years, and mm. go to a different part of the world. And get get on my bike and, and just start riding. And I, I always went with at least one friend and sometimes as many as four, whoever I could corral to go with me for parts of it. But um, I truly was on a mission to see what was out there before I made my decision. I wanted to know who was out there and what they were doing and what they believed and how they thought and and. I didn't want to get to this stage in my life and look backwards and say, boy, I wished I had known this, you know, that or this then. So I did that, came back with the formed understanding that it didn't matter as much what 
topic you chose to go into, science or medicine or farming or bricklaying. It does, didn't matter so much what you chose as how you pursued it, how you went about it, how you invested yourself into it. So I came back with a more applied focus, um, applied myself to just two diverse topics this time, electrical engineering. I really preferred physics, but my physics professor told me at the time that um, that if I wanted to be a, a, a physicist, I'd have to get my PhD and wait for his job. But if I could be an engineer and take all the physics I wanted to, but I would be immediately employable and make more than he did, you know, with a, an undergraduate degree. So, so I took that advice, uh, just went into electrical engineering, but engineering all by itself, I didn't want to leave the life sciences behind. So I also uh, paired that with a degree in biology. I say degrees in engineering and biology, uh, cumulatively, my coursework added up to with, ended up with five minors and almost three, <laughs> three majors. Also in the mix, I co-opt for NASA. Technically, my first federal grants came from NASA. So I, NASA sponsored me as a student on some cool projects. So yeah, so I started school, college when I was 16. And I graduated when I was 24. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so I could hear that. That's, so it was like an eight-year. It was an eight-year journey. Yeah. Uh, so I could hear that as like a a you know Tommy like you know young Tommy squeezing everything out of life that you can find along the way and having this fabulous time and just exploring every passion of yours. And somehow, or I could hear that. Or I could hear yes. that as as like as a time of anxiety and sort of like and and confusion of like of of trying to figure out what you you know I think a lot of a lot of undergrads put pressure on themselves to uh -huh. to pick to choose to sort of dedicate and, and and find their passion you know people the young like kids are often told like find your passion follow your passion and I don't know about you but like I didn't know what I wanted to do till I was thirty five. How did you experience this like from the, at the moment did this feel like awesome, I'm having such a good time, or what the hell am I doing? Very much both. And, and that, I haven't changed. That feeling continues to this day. Um, the main thing I've accomplished over the course of my life, I've just become more relaxed and accepting of who I am. But um, my approach to life really hasn't changed. As, as you were saying in an earlier conversation, you know, there are some people I see that seem to be born with a focus. And, and I was always coached, you know, if you want to make your mark in the world, you've got to really put all your pressure in one focal point and, and push hard. I could just never do that. It wasn't in me. I like to joke if, if ADD was a, a diagnosis in my day, I probably would have been diagnosed. But I, I have always just had a very broad spectrum of, of interests and sufficiently talented to be able to manage any of them if, if I wanted to pursue them. But at the same time, I've just never been very good at, at focus um, right. on a particular topic to the exclusion of everything else in the world. When I talk to scientists at Columbia in these conversations, it's often people go straight from undergrad to graduate school and begin their PhD so they can kind of get as quickly as possible uh -huh. into their planned career. You didn't. You went to Texas no. Instruments, if I remember correctly. Well, right. first, yeah, I, I mentioned that I, I started actually before I graduated working as a co-op engineer for NASA. Um, and I um, 
And there again, the, 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 the popular topic in engineering in those days was everything digital um, and semiconductors. So I started with NASA in uh, Division of Digital Electronics Design. Um, my first job with NASA was um, debugging launch code. Um, you know, this basically you give the rookie something nobody else wants to do. But it, 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 it was just painfully boring in the sense, in those days, we had box after box after box of green and white lined computer paper with machine code running down the left-hand margin of every page for thousands and thousands of pages. And this was a, a custom designed architecture and language called Goal Ground Oper Operations Applications Language. Um, they are at Kennedy Space Center, and uh, this was before buy it off the shelf and you know faster, cheaper, smarter days. And um, so, um, so I would fall asleep at my desk. I thought I had narcolepsy, so I went to the health center there, uh, complained, and they kind of laughed and said, "Oh, that's a common problem around here." <laughs> um, so uh, you know, entry level government workers, uh, bureaucrats, so. NASA, for all its glory on the outside, on, on the inside, it was, you know, another government job. Even though I say that now, I, most of the government workers I know, for example, in, in NIH and NSF are exactly opposite. They truly impressed me. But um, um, anyway, I'm diverging again. They noticed at the time I was exactly the, the, si the design center for astronauts, six Six foot, I mean, five foot ten, uh, 160 pounds, good eyes, good teeth, good ears. So, whereas I had longed to be an astronaut, I didn't want to really embark on a, I'm kind of a pacifist in nature. I didn't want to embark on a military career um, in the Air Force or Navy for the one in 10,000 uh, chance of, of getting to be an astronaut. Um, those days, uh, astronauts were drawn from those, those pools. Um, I went to work um, for NASA as a civil servant, um, and I, so I did get to do some some dummy astronaut things, modeling spacesuits and working with tools and things that were developed there. But um, most of my job was, again, uh, at an entry-level bureaucrat job with a, a clipboard, uh, talking to vendor A and vendor B about bringing together, uh, you know, two items to at a certain time and date and price and meeting specs to make part C. Anyway, so that was how the space shuttle was built. Uh, we had a terrible joke uh, about the space shuttle representing 500,000 government lowest bids all in a pile on the pad. Um, <laughs> but actually, we, it is interesting, though, because <laughs> when you, I mean, I'm guessing you, you might find the same about life now, but it is always interesting that even these, even these incredibly glamorous outcomes, these life-changing outcomes, these amazing discoveries and inventions, um, you know, the day-to-day -day work that led up to them is oh, still yeah. a job. And it's still, you know, some of these jobs <laughs> are a grind. Like even, even yeah. the Nobel Prize winning outcomes are often there's, you know, there's someone grinding away in a basement, keeping, taking care of mice or, or trying to solder wires or, you know, running lines and lines and lines of code and debugging things. And, and you know, that's the way, that's the way these happened. And it, and it truly was right up through the first shuttle launch. You know, we, we spent days and days and days in the firing room, you know, mission control that you see on TV, um, running through simulated launches. 
not trying to eliminate all the errors, but all the criti mission critical errors. <laughs> so right. no one was more amazed when that thing flew than, than we were. But um, <laughs> so, so it, it's, um, you know, you, that's the kind of thing you get one shot at, right? So anyway, but my experience there, I, I met in the process some prime contractors um, that I worked with, one of them being Texas Instruments. And um, Texas Instruments, at the time, uh, they had 80% of the government business and, and radar. And we used radar, microwave radar, to, to launch and land uh, the shuttle there at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, the shuttle, you remember, was a big glider. We had one shot. We had to bring it in with, with a, a, a microwave landing system. And, um, and that was Texas Instruments' job. Um, so I met Texas Instruments that way. Um, they recruited me to go to, to Texas, to Dallas, um, and to, to do some, you know, and I'm holding my fingers up, quotation marks, real engineering work. Um, so I went to work for TI as a design engineer, um, electrical design engineer for their, it was a, a black box project at the time. Um, it worried me a little bit because I, again, I mentioned my pacifist side. I didn't really want to make a, a career in military electronics per se. So, um, but I, TI did promise to send me to graduate school, um, which I decided at the time uh, that I, I wanted to, to go to graduate school. So, and they did that um, even though I worked on a, a top secret program, um, and was locked in and locked out every day. They had an early prototype internet system called Tager um, that I got an electrical engineering master's degree um, over a, an, internet, an internet prototype system. Um, the, um, rather than, however, take my master's in electrical engineering, in the course of that, um, I wanted to take a course in, in real life, you know, we're still facing that now. I wanted a real classroom experience rather than a virtual degree. And so I went over to UT South. It was in those days, UT Health Science Center, Dallas. Now it's called UT Southwestern. Um, and to take a course in NMR, um, I remembered, remember I had a degree in biology too. Which and actually, I'm sorry, doing. you yeah. know what NMR is, but, but maybe tell okay, our audience I'm sorry. what NMR is. Yeah. Nuclear magnetic resonance, um, first discovered and described theoretically here at Columbia uh, by Isdor Rabi in the 1930s. He got a Nobel Prize for it in 1944. Um, is nuclear magnetic resonance. Um, that's uh, the, the same technique that's used today to get signal to do MRI, magnetic resonance imaging with. Um, you stimulate uh, a signal response from protons in your body and then receive that signal um, to make images with. The, um, the nuclear was taken out of that term early on by the, the applied medical science side because people were afraid of, you know, nuclear had bad connotations, but we're not talking about ionizing radiation. We're just talking about atomic nuclei. Uh, we use primarily protons to image with 
which of course are non-ionizing. They're just um, the uh, removing the term nuclear was just to sanitize the name I for the lay public. That. So that was so, your first exposure to that. That class was your first exposure to the imaging side. Is that? Is it, that, right? that this this was before imaging. Um, NMR was used for decades in the chemistry lab, um, organic chemistry lab to decipher the molecular structure of proteins and sugars and even DNA, RNA. Um, so it was used as a chemistry tool. And I had um, remembered that from my school days, my biology degree, yes, but I had a minor, uh, a minor in organic chemistry as part of my biology degree. So I had used NMR in the chemistry lab. And so I remember NMR had to do an NMR system involves uh, pulsing a stimulus signal um, and, and receiving a, a signal and signal averaging until you collect enough signal to get your data uh, with. In those days, we didn't make images. We hadn't discovered that yet. That was a discovery by Paul Lauterberg here at Sunny, uh, Stony Brook um, later, but um, in 1987. But um, when I was learning NMR, we weren't imaging yet. So, but I had remembered that that was a, a radar-like system used in the, the chemistry lab. So, it was natural for me to want to sign up for an NMR course at UT Southwestern. Um, so that was a seminal moment. That was what got me into this field and back into academia. Um, the um, my advisor there. Um, a guy named Ray Nunnally, who's no longer with us, um, had the option in those days of, of MRI had just been discovered. It was a big new thing. Uh, he, from his PhD at Johns Hopkins, he could go to be a postdoc at MGH or a center director at UT Southwestern. So he chose the latter. Mm -hmm. um, he showed up to do MRI there, a uh, construction magnate there, funded the the project um it was exciting new territory you know mri was just just on just a thing and um he bought a magnet uh the world's most powerful magnet at the time uh, uh mri magnet uh, a two tesla magnet um but there was no system to go with it so um when he discovered that uh and i was taking this course so when we got in discussion about uh, what it would take to build a system for that magnet, um, you know, I had been designing and building radar sets. So, so I volunteered for the job. He hired me into the field, and I've been building uh, the next most powerful MRI system ever since. <laughs> so this sounds like incredibly expensive work in some ways. Like this isn't this isn't uh, you know field work. Uh, in your local communities, you're building these massive machines. Where does the funding for all of this work come from? The NIH, um, NSF also, um, and uh, DOD and DARPA to an extent. Um, most of the funding agencies um, have been very good at, at funding this work, both the development of the technology as well as, as the applications. Uh, both for science and for medicine. Um, so I've been very fortunate as an engineer uh, working in academics to 
have a steady uh, source of funding uh, from our federal agencies uh, to, whoever, <laughs> to whom I'm ever indebted and appreciative. I also, myself, and I encourage others to be part of the peer review process to keep this going. You're asking a lot of your fellow investigators, uh, aka competitors, uh, to spend time reviewing your work and, and um, instead of uh, advancing their own work and, and sharing funds with you instead of uh, saving them for themselves. Um, but I'm surprised at how well our, our uh, peer review funding or how our peer review system works uh, with federal funding sources like this. Um, very conscientious uh, program officers, um, very conscientious uh, peer reviewers. Um, I, I cynically knowing uh, uh, other sides of competitive human nature, I wouldn't, wouldn't have expected uh, a system that works as well as, as what we have from our national funding agencies. That's good to hear. So, so maybe let's pause for a moment and, and yeah. tell us, you know, at most, most people listening to this um, may have encountered an MRI in a clinical setting. Yep. Um, and, you know, when you're having a scary moment in the hospital. Um, but yep. aside from that, probably has very little sense of what's going on sort of behind the lens in a sense. And, yep. and what MRIs, like what they are, how do they work and what are they used for? Um, so maybe let's let's zoom in on that for a moment. Pardon the pun, but let's let's zoom in on that for a moment. And yep. and what is an MRI? Well, um, I'll try to condense in a five minutes what's normally a, a full course at least. MRI is a way to uh, stimulate a signal from the protons um, in your body. Um, you, you may remember proton is the nucleus of a hydrogen atom. You've got two hydrogen atoms for every water molecule. You've got uh, hydrogen atoms on every carbon chain that builds your body. So uh, you've got a lot of hydrogen in your body. And every proton, every nucleus from every hydrogen atom um, is a source of signal for NMR or MRI, as we call it now. Um, we have to, the trick is, and the technique is to stimulate the signal from this hydrogen. So the way you do it uh, with an MRI is you put somebody in a, a big, powerful magnet, um, and that lines the protons, the hydrogen nuclei, up in your body like little bar magnets. And um, so you've got all, all the the. the protons in your body lined up like little bar magnets with the main magnet field. And, and the, the magnet is the big thing that you crawl into or, or rolled into in a table when you get an MRI. That's a big superconducting magnet. Let me digress a minute to describe what that magnet is. Um, you've all done the science experiment uh, where you wrap a, a piece of wire, insulated wire around a nail and connect both terminals to a battery and create a little electromagnet with that nail. Um, in this case, uh, that magnet that you roll into on a patient bed is, is the same thing. It's an electromagnet. It's a bunch of wire, in this case, superconducting wire, wrapped around the, the cylinder inside that, that big thermos bottle that you go into. 
Um, and it has to, most of what you're looking at is a big thermos bottle because you have to keep that wire uh, down to four degrees Kelvin or colder with liquid helium um, in a big thermos bottle to keep that wire superconducting. But anyway, you're in a big electromagnet and you, your body is the nail effectively in, in that uh, coil of wire. So, and, and I think most of us, when we think of a magnet, we think of, you know, something that you would carry around or like little rare earth magnets. These things right. are enormous, right? This is, it's, I, I, it's, it's a, it's a big, a big spool of wire, um, a, a big superconducting solenoid, uh, with as much as, is is, uh, I know it in kilometers anyway, we scientists, but it is 17 kilometers of wire more wrapped around a core. Um, of course, when you go into it, you're going into the, the hole in the middle. But um, the wire is the wire and a liquid helium bath, uh, keeping that wire cold is what's in a big thermos bottle is what that an MRI system is that you look at. Well, anyway, back to how MRI works. Um, you line all the protons up in your body in a, a net alignment, and then you pulse your body with a, a second kind of, of antenna uh, coil, an antenna-like device called a coil, because the first of these look just like coils of wire also. This antenna-like device is built into the bore of the magnet that you're in too, so you don't see any of this. You're just lying in the middle of it all when you're inside the MRI machine. So a big antenna-like device pulses uh, at radio frequency a signal that causes those little protons to spin or to dance, if you want to say it that way. But uh, so those protons spin and you couple to those protons at the frequency where you get maximum energy transfer. So it's, it's at their vibrational frequency, we call Larmor frequency. So you cause them to spin and, and then you remove the pulse and they spin back down into realignment with the magnet, with the magnet field. You, then you have a second antenna like device uh, that you place on you or around you. Like when you put your head in, in an object or when you lay a, a cushion on top of you, um, that has a, a receiver antennas inside it and they receive this signal of those spinning protons. Those spinning protons, remember, they're little, like little bar magnets. They're cutting through a, a magnet field while they're spinning. This is the same way we generate electricity in, in a power plant. You spin uh, a coil of wire inside a magnet and that, that coil can be spun with steam power, or with hydropower, but you're spinning a coil of wire called an armature in, inside a magnet uh, to generate electricity. Well, we're using a big magnet and uh, local antennas to, to generate electricity at a tiny, tiny level, nanowatt level, uh, from your body and to receive that to make images with. So that's how we get images from your body or the signal from your body to make images with. Huh. Now, it's... That's amazing. Yep. So, so essentially, yep. I actually didn't realize that. So, so essentially, what the MRI is doing, if I understand correctly, is it's basically turning your your own protons in your cells into a power source 
That's that right. You're essentially exciting them to the point where they're generating energy, and then you're reading that energy. That's um, correct. Directly, but but all with no harm to the body. That's correct. And wow. and and when you do this, you know we've learned as as engineers and data scientists, we've learned how to acquire this energy by scanning your body, uh, scanning your body over over two or three dimensions to get two dimensional image slices from this signal. And you can imagine there are different ways to contrast images, but you can imagine there's more there are more hydrogen atoms, more protons in your fat than say in your bone. So you get more signal from your fat than you do your bones. So you're you can turn that into an image where your your fat is contrasted white and your bone is contrasted darker. And mm. so you've got a contrasted image and you receive that signal over a two-dimensional plane and and you've got an image showing fat and bone and muscle in between huh. so so in completely safely um completely non-invasively um and this the ability to image anatomy structure uh, in the most powerful magnets down to tens of microns in plane resolution with high contrast soft tissue and hard tissue makes MRI the most fabulous of all the, the, the means to image um, the human body with. So I was talking to uh, Professor Carfogu, um uh, in an earlier discussion uh-huh. about the ultrasound technology. Yeah. And if, and if I remember correctly, like she was, con- she was, she was making the point that, uh, that, that uh, MRIs are amazing and ultrasound is amazing and they're just very different because they have different applications. And one of the things about ultrasound is you can wheel it to the bedside Whereas uh, with MRIs, I mean, I think just to paint a picture here, my understanding is that the modern MRIs weigh, the system might weigh something like 300 ton. So in your lab at Columbia, um, you know, you spent your, your professional life working on MRI systems. Yep. And, but they sound like fundamentally they are, like the, the way this works has been, was discovered a long time ago. So how would you describe what you spend your time on like is is your lab focusing on making it better or faster or cheaper or smaller or more rugged like what what's how have these changed over the last 30 years okay well um as i warned i i can go long on a lot of this but uh i i wanted to back up a bit uh a typical mr system weighs between 20 and eighty thousand pounds uh dr kanafuku is right um I mean, I answer the same way. Different imaging modalities are complementary. They give you different information in different ways. So ideally, and, and what we spend a lot of time collectively doing is collecting all of that data from all of these sources to get the most complete picture. So I don't mean to hold one over the other. but um, And um, we actually do, these days, have an MRI that you can wheel up to the bedside. Hyperfine, for example, is a company that makes that. So a lot of progress has been made um, in using this. But what's what do I spend my time with? Um, since I've been in this field a long time, I started when MRI, you, even though imaging was a brand new invention as of the late 80s, um, and it wasn't really in the clinics much till then. When I started in this field, people regarded imaging as, as just a, a curiosity to play with, but it wasn't really going to be a, a clinical modality yet. So 
we were mostly focused on using imaging as NMR, that, that organic chemistry tool, to look at metabolism. If we could look at biochemistry in your body, that's we had new powerful magnets, so we could start to look at whole bodies the same way we used to look at test tubes of, of sugars or proteins. Now we could look at whole bodies in the same way. We can use NMR or to look at the chemical information in your body and chemistry over time is metabolism. So we looked at metabolism. We looked at metabolism of, of hearts. Um, for example, we can look at an isotope of phosphorus P31 to look at inorganic phosphate uh, metabolism to look at a heart attack, a region of a heart attack, for example, to see in the heart wall, the degree that your heart wall is, is damaged or recoverable, and we can watch it recover over time with different therapies. Uh, we can look at temporal epilepsy in the brain using C13 metabolism um, to, to, or proton metabolism. For temporal epilepsy, you can very effectively treat it by excising one or the other hippocampi lobes, but you can't do both. You only get one shot at this. We've got some good literature on using proton metabolism. You can look at tumor metabolism. For example, at University of Minnesota, where I came from, rather than uh, finding a lump through X-ray mammography using ionizing radiation, um, we can use MRI to detect tumors. And then at the same time, we can determine whether that tumor is malignant or benign by looking at the metabolic signature. That's um, looking at the chemistry from live growing tumors looks different than uh, tumors from healthy normal tissue around it. Um, so we can not only uh, specify whether it's malignant or benign, but we can also track therapy. So rather than... So actually, just to make sure I understand, in that case, you're, not, you're, you're looking at what the tumor looks like, but well, you're we also can... actually at the same time looking at what the tumor is doing. Yes, they, and that's and that's important because we in in like two days we we can on an outpatient basis without sticking a person we can detect a tumor we can specify benign or malignancy and then we can track therapy uh, chemotherapy for example rather than taking out the tumor and biopsying it or just uh, removing the tumor we can leave the tumor in, use that as the canary in the coal mine because we, we know where that tumor is. We can watch it for a minute. Uh, we don't know wh whether or not there might be metastasis elsewhere in the body, but we can assume uh, that the metastasis will be from that tumor origin or that, or that same tumor. Um, so we can watch that tumor uh, and track it through chemotherapy. So you can administer chemotherapy. We can look at that tumor uh, metabolism, and if we can change that metabolism in in a destructive way for that tumor, uh, we know that we're treating the whole body systemically the same way. So we can, and we can see a change in 24 hours, as opposed to waiting to see a, a morphological change that might be over the course of weeks of right. worry. So, so it's. I'll I'll try to summarize. Like I say, get long-winded. Um, MRI. NMR and something called fMRI. Uh, MRI is a way you can look at a body chemically or metabolically. You can look at a body uh, anatomically or structurally. And something we haven't talked about, you can look at a body um, physiologically or functionally. 
uh, with a technique called functional MRI, where we can look at uh, how your brain is activated um, in response to different uh, environmental stimuli. So this is a fabulously powerful tool we can use to look at your mind and body inside and out, chemically, structurally, functionally. Um, it, it's, uh, so I've spent my whole life making more powerful systems to do, to do all of these applications in a more powerful way um, and to develop the, the first applications of these. Many of our listeners may not have visited uh, the Newman, Columbia's New Manhattanville campus yet um, and may not have been into the Jerome L. Green Science Center, the Zuckerman Brain Behavior Institute, which is mm-hmm. one of my absolute favorite buildings on campus. It's a, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a gorgeous Renzo Piano designed uh, uh, building on a master plan campus. And, you know, it's very ethereal. It's glass and steel and, and it's beautiful and open and airy. Um, and, and yet somewhere in there, you're working on these massive machines um, like if we walked into your lab, what would we see? Well, the first thing you would see would be the machines because they are massive um, and they're centered in the middle of the room. But um, it's it's that's not all show quality. We have to start off with these these machines. Our, ours are on the order of, of between twenty and thirty thousand pounds in, in weight, just for the MRI machine itself. They have to be put in the middle of a, a big copper box um, that shields them from the outside world uh, electromagnetically. You know, we're trying to detect tiny, tiny signals um, from the environment. So you can imagine in the middle of, of Manhattan, uh, it's a very harsh environment to receive tiny signals because we're bathed in, in radio and TV and even white noise from spark plugs and um, and tr- electric trains and elevators and all right. the instruments. They're I mean, all generating the, the, the one train runs about 100 yards from your lab. That's right. So <laughs> and they, they, they all generate all kinds of, of, of noise over the entire electromagnetic spectrum. And so we have to be in a pristine environment uh, where we don't get any signal from anything. So these big rooms that these magnets go into are even bigger and, and more impressive. Uh, they have to shield out actively and passively all of that signal from the outside. Um, so they're, they're systems in themselves that you don't notice because you think you're just walking into a room. Um, but then, um, of course, we've got all the instruments to go with that, the, the console for, for the MRI systems, the um, all the peripheral devices we use for, for monitoring physiology or for stimulating signals uh, or for monitoring those or even for, for uh, you know, mental exercises like games and, and ways we stimulate behavior um, or ask for decision making from behavior exercises. Um, all of that equipment is in racks and racks stacked around um, these magnets, but not too close around. The magnets have to be by themselves because you don't want everything sticking to the side of them. They're very powerful. But um, these magnets are, are three Tesla, the ones we primarily use. Uh, one, one Tesla is um, you know, 10,000 times the Earth's field. So we do have, uh, you know, collectively something called um, magnetic research center um, 
it's comprised of main campus, Zuckerman, the MRI center run by the radiology uh, department up at Columbia Medical Center, and at uh, New York State Psychiatric Institute, also in the medical center. Got we have we have one more at Nathan Klein Institute, the the up the river uh, about 15 miles. The reason I bring that up, we've got uh, two more, including our, our latest edition, which is a 9.40 system that we just got funded from National Science Foundation and New York State to build uh, one of the most world's most powerful MRI magnets there uh, for neuroscience, and so that's that's a, a big project. That's also part of our MR Research Center. And so I, I presume that the more, I mean, the more powerful the magnet and the more powerful the system, the more data you can extract. And I know that during our time working together, you know, with your work at CT, with your work through our office at Columbia Technology Ventures, you've, you focused a lot on, on trying to make, you know, essentially to extract more data in more useful ways to, to have a real impact on, on humanity. And one of those projects that you've talked about is this concept of an accessible MRI. And so yes. maybe you could, I mean, cause it's sort of, it's sort of obvious to, I think most of us listening to you talk that these are incredibly expensive, incredibly rarefied, uh, devices that, that, you know, one might think would, would really be essentially inaccessible to most of humanity. And so what does an accessible MRI mean? Thank you for asking one of my favorite topics. Also, you're correct. Uh, what, what I've spent most of my career doing is building the most powerful MRI, but now at this stage in my life, wanting to do something more. According to World Health Organization, 70% of the world has no MRI at all. As powerful a wonderful tool as this is for science and medicine, it's not been delivered to the world. And especially uh, these uh, valuable days when, when we're, we're looking more towards a democratization of science and medicine, it's, it's really important to pause and say, well, what can we do to deliver to make MRI more accessible for the world. So if you design an MRI system, which I spent my career doing, but rather than to be the most powerful science instrument ever, to be the most broadly available, accessible unit ever, uh, you come up with an entirely different kind of, of a system and an entirely different kind of deployment model. So we've spent over a decade and, and picking up steam mostly here at Columbia and coming up with a design and putting together a plan to do that. I mean, our goal is, and we believe that we have the demonstrated technology to be able to locate an MRI system in every sub-Saharan village in Africa, in every igloo in Greenland, in every um, mountain village in Guatemala, in every doctor's office in Manhattan. We think that we have the technology identified and developed to do that. Now, we haven't done all this technology ourselves, but it's become newly available to make this possible. So we're mostly here in the game of integrating the cloud, a very powerful means of, of uh, managing data from large networks of, of systems like this, to a sustainable unit, essentially an off-the-grid MRI system on the ground that it's, works uh, autonomously, like an ATM machine to a central bank. You don't have to 
go to your your banker three or four times or make appointments six weeks ahead with your banker to sit down and check your balance or to take out money, all you have to do is walk up to the local corner ATM machine and put your card in. We should be able to do that in the future, I'm sure, will allow us to take our 5G cell phone and access our health folder in the cloud and um, walk into a drugstore and put our ankle that we just tripped on the sidewalk somewhere and twisted in the MRI machine and take a look and upload our data to our health folder that we can shop around to wherever we want, whoever we want to, to look at it or interpret it. And of course we have algorithms to do uh, the lion's share of that interpretation as well. So we're talking about, uh, uh, let me see if I can categorize this, um, an MR system itself that we can put on the ground anywhere, uh, the imaging suite, rather than being a, a doctor's office or a hospital, it will uh, it'll be, I mean, we can put this in a doctor's office, but it'll be a uh, just in a half-size shipping container. Um, we will build out uh, the entire imaging suite with a very small compact, but still strong magnet uh, for clinical diagnostic quality imaging. Um, the user interface for that on the ground at the site would be your cell phone or an iPad. Um, and this will cost orders of magnitude less. It will be orders of magnitude more compact and lightweight. With modern superconducting wire that we're just beginning to, to use to build these magnets with, we can do this uh, by getting away from liquid helium, which is scarce, and hard to deliver and expensive, we can use with working with higher temperature superconductors to build new kinds of magnets. We can use uh, liquid hydrogen that we can crack out of the local water supply with, with sun, or we can use the uh, solid nitrogen that we can freeze out of the atmosphere with the same diesel truck gen uh, engine that, that drove the magnet to its site and dumped it in the village. So. We will have a network of these that requires no, no more, it doesn't require local radiologists or engineers or MR techs. Um, it requires a local field nurse just to help people get into and out of the magnet to provide the human interface. Uh, the diagnostic protocol will be downloaded by satellite link from the cloud. The data acquisition will be uploaded by satellite link to the cloud. Elon Musk now has made sure that um, that 98% of, of the world is covered by this cloud network. So we can acquire images from anywhere on the planet um, and manage that data, archive it, operate on it, use it to interpret uh, diagnostics or use it for science. MRI is a marvelous tool for monitoring the state of health and behavior of human populations anywhere on the planet. But to do that, we need a machine that can go anywhere on the planet. Uh, we've got one here, we're working on that. We're setting up shop now in India to produce and manufacture this. That's amazing. I mean, you know, so what I love about, about your story is, you know, there are people who spend their whole careers focusing on building the best, most expensive, most functional, uh, highest quality blank car, let's say. Yeah. And this, and there's others who are focusing on trying to get, uh, you know, a cheap, 
rugged, fast, uh, easy to build, fast to deploy blank to the most number of people in the world. You know, building, building super cheap bicycles or building super fancy cars. And in some ways, you're doing both. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, you're using the same fundamental understanding of how these MRIs work to tackle sort of both ends of the barbell for very different outcomes. Uh, and that, and that, that strikes me as, as an interesting, you know, balance to pull off. And, and in some ways, if I think back on, on your, the origin story, you know, back, back to sort of young Tommy, you're managing to, to, to do a bunch of different things at once rather than having to specialize. So you're sort of still doing that even within your field. I did introduce myself as Yogi Berra, so I'm still doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually, maybe maybe we'll close on a little bit of advice to to sort of younger younger scientists, like early career scientists or, or college students or graduate students, who who might look at you now and say, "Wow, I, you know, I I want to be Dr. Vaughn someday. Like this is this is the person I want to be." And what they may not appreciate, uh, well, actually, so two questions there. The first is. Um, I know it's it's tempting for for people outside of the sciences or for younger people in the sciences to think that you know these careers are just an unending series of successes um, that you just go from like you know catching the vine to catching the vine to catching the vine and you just keep swinging the whole way through. But but I know there's up and ups and downs in these careers as well. And so I guess any advice to to early career scientists on how to weather the ups and downs of of what is a, you know a pretty tumultuous career choice. Uh, yes, there are some people born with a mission or focus or a drive, but that's not all of us. Um, it's, it's, I would, I would say relax a, a bit. It's, it's okay to, uh, pursue different disparate interests, even if they don't seemingly track your, uh, conceived career path at the time. Um, because everything you do Everything you learn, everything you apply yourself to um, becomes who you are and it becomes your unique tool set. And it, it makes you, in many cases, and like myself, a bridge between multiple fields uh, with, with unique understanding or perspective. Um, so it, it's, it, it can be quite an advantage. There, for all the things I've done in life sciences and physical sciences and engineering and art and literature and music, um, it's, it's, um, in international travel, it's, it's all serves me well. Now I have to draw on all of it and, um, and it makes, it's made my life and it, it makes my life in a rich full way, the way I enjoy it. Well, and speaking of a rich full life, I, I, Again, some of the listeners may not have been on the Columbia campus for a while, but but if you had been on campus during the pandemic times, um, and you walked along the path from Low Library past Uris Hall, where the business school was until it moved recently, and towards the engineering school, um, you you would come across a, a patch of dirt um, that you know had been sort of grass growing on campus, and and it, it had sprouted into a garden, uh, and not just a, a, a you know a small little garden, but but a multi-crop, fairly large garden. And I'd always wondered, you know, the story behind this. But I think what what people might not realize is that Dr. Vaughn, you know, could often be found sort of up to his elbows, growing like digging in the dirt during during this time. And 
And so, I, you know, I know you mentioned that when you were a kid, you loved gardening. And, and, but how do, you, how do you find time to pursue these kind of side, side hobbies? And, and what do they do for you? Well, I can't not find time for them. I guess another way to answer. It's, it's uh, different people enjoy doing different things. And, and this is just a hobby of mine. It, I, this, excuse the pun, but it uh, keeps me grounded. I love working with my hands. I love producing things. I love growing things. I love tending things. Um, it's it's uh, the same thing with you know me in the classroom or me in the lab. Or I, I like watching things grow. And, um, and applying myself to that steady growth process. I, I can come up with all these fancy reasons, but it's just really just the enjoyment of, of getting outside and digging in the dirt and breathing fresh air and looking at the sun. I've never gotten away from that. It's always been. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm glad you found a way to, to, to do that, you know, right in the heart of one of the most densely populated uh, academic campuses in the world. So it is, it, that must have been quite a feat. I, uh, Dr. Vaughn, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And thank you, too. I enjoyed it myself. Mm-hmm.